a hike. There's nothing, in my opinion, like walking a ridgeline with a view. You've done the hard work to get there, and though there's more hard work ahead, you get the joy of not only seeing some of where you've come from, but also as you're threading your way along this high point, you get the first glimpses of where you're headed. As I've lived close to Galatians recently, I feel that verse 1 of chapter 5 has the same effect as walking an open ridge line. Let's look at it together. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In the latter half of this verse, Paul is glancing back, and this is what we see from the ridge. In the first four chapters, he's trying to wake up the Galatians who are in danger of drifting away from the glorious message of the gospel, that Jew and Gentile alike are welcomed into God's presence, not by keeping the law given to the Jews, not by anything we can do, but by faith in Christ who did what we could never do, perfectly keeping the law, and as Paul puts it in chapter 2, making it tender and personal, who loved me and gave himself for me. He reiterates his passionate appeal to the Galatians here as the message version says, take your stand, never again let anyone put the harness of slavery on you. Paul here is using another symbol to show that we're not under bondage, as last week we learned from Ian about a different metaphor Paul used, that we're not the children of the slave mother Hagar. Most translations here use the words yoke of slavery. Now, in Jesus' day, a yoke was a rigid U-shaped collar or harness that fit over an ox's shoulders to pull a plow, wagon, or logs. Oxen typically worked in pairs in a double yoke, with the older, stronger ox teaching the younger ox how to respond to the master and get things done. This yoke, he fears, the Galatians want to put on is a heavy burden, a condemning burden, a crushing burden Christ came to lift from our shoulders by inviting us, the weary and heavy laden, to be joined with him in his yoke, reassuring us that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Imagine the honor he's offering us to be joined with him in his work and to learn directly from him how to respond to the Father. Right in the very first words of verse 1, Paul is directing our gaze toward where we'll be walking next with him, to the very purpose of being set free, freedom. So what does this new life of freedom look like? Well, that's exactly what Paul will explore in most of the rest of the letter. But before Paul gets to that, we see that the apostle can't pull himself away from another warning. He feels, not unlike a good parent, he must once again press his point with the Galatians in verses 2 through 4. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen from grace. What a stark contrast he paints here, and what strong verbs, severed and fallen away. Paul in Galatians uses many images and metaphors, as you've seen. You will recall Brittany Drew's message on being a son and heir, where Christ, the true son, freely shares his rightful inheritance with us who were slaves and undeserving. 
striking contrast pepper his whole defense of the gospel. He wants the words severed and fallen away to startle them awake. As I read this passage in Galatians 5, I was reminded of the hymn, And Can It Be?, in which Charles Wesley paints his own stunning picture of the contrast between bondage and freedom. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Here's a man, or implied a woman, lying on the floor of a dark, dank prison. We'll say it's you. You can't see. You're weighed down by shackles, chains of sin and captivity that keep you from moving much beyond just attending to the necessities of life. But into this dark, hopeless, claustrophobic setting, Christ looks and sees you. From his eyes come light that not only dispels darkness, but also quickens, which means to jumpstart life, to start your heart beating as if for the first time, raising you from death. The prisoner awakens to see his cell filled with light and to feel his chains dropping to the ground. For the Galatians, who've been loose from this prison cell by believing the gospel, choosing circumcision and trying to keep the law is like rewinding the scene to the beginning. So rewind. Here's the darkness and the chains again, but there's no Christ whose eye is lighting up the cell and causing your heart to beat to life. Do you really want to cut Christ out of this scene, Galatians? Do you really want to return to a life where you can do nothing to save yourself and, and there's no Christ coming with his grace to save helpless you? And what about you who are listening today? Which scene would you choose? Will you try to save yourself by being good and living up to some standard to earn God's smile? Or will you trust your hopeless condition to Christ's sacrifice, breaking into your world every single day? You can't have it both ways, Paul is saying here. But then in verse 5, Paul presents a striking vision of what life looks like when we choose to follow Christ out of that dungeon. For through the Spirit, he says, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Notice that here Paul uses we, reminding the Galatians that this life of being set free is something they already share, an incredible future unveiled before them when they heard and responded to the gospel. The second thing to notice here is that the verb to wait is a passive verb, a verb which is a response to something someone else has initiated. He says that we, all of us who believe in Christ, eagerly wait for this hope of righteousness. This is a child waiting for Christmas morning kind of waiting, a bride waiting for her wedding day kind of waiting, a fisherman waiting for the opening day of fishing season kind of waiting. But take note, waiting is not working. The truth is we will not see full perfection in our lives here. We will never outgrow the need for Christ. In fact, for those of us who've walked with him for many years, the truth is we only see our need for forgiveness more and our need for his grace more. Looking at ourselves and seeing righteousness growing in and of ourselves is not the Christian hope. Rather, placing our faith fully in Jesus and believing his promise to make us like him when we see him as he is now, now there's the ground of our comfort. We wait in faith, and it's his spirit who reminds us of that certain hope. This is how John puts it in his first letter. 
Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. In his most beautiful prayer, recorded in John 17, Jesus asked the Father before his death that we might behold the glory he shared with the Father from before the foundation of the world. We in our current state could not stand in the presence of such power, beauty, and perfection. No, but that is the hope of righteousness. God will one day make us fit to experience this full vision of his beloved Son, and not only that, but to become partakers of that glory. We will know him in the most intimate way, in an intimacy to which the closeness of any human relationship will pale in comparison. Such tender love, such absolute joy, such thrilling knowledge of the beauty of his perfections will be ours, and we'll be able to handle it because he will have perfected us and completely rid us of all that makes us incapable of knowing and enjoying him. Now that's the hope of righteousness, and we wait for it. We don't work for it. And as we do wait, this kind of hope shapes us in the present. Let's read on. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Compared to our participation in this beatific vision that I just tried to convey, circumcision, a cut in the flesh to make you a part of the Jewish people, is mere peanuts. What counts is not a cut in the flesh or no cut in the flesh, but a faith that looks ahead and hangs onto the vision of the perfection that we will share with Christ, a faith that expresses itself now in love. Maybe if you're a newer believer, you're surprised to hear that as we Christians grow older, we are more aware of our need for a savior. When I became a Christian in high school 50 years ago last month, I thought I'd be a lot further along as a good person at this age. As I said before, not true. But what is true, and ask any older believer, is that this vision of our seeing and sharing in Christ's glory becomes ever more brighter and clearer. It's a hope that holds me in good times and in very difficult ones. I trust it to hold me in death. Let's turn to the second to last group of verses we'll look at. As we read them, I'm reminded of Ray's statement about Paul in her message two weeks ago from Galatians 4, where she said, Paul agonizes over the Galatians because of his love and his commitment to them so that they become like Jesus. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. He uses two images. The first is that of a runner being cut off in mid-race. Like one of the spectators who lines a marathon course and jingles cowbells and yells encouragement, Paul is praising how they've been running. Only now, someone is cut in front of them and their stride is broken. They're in danger of not completing the race. This interruption is not from God. The second image is of bread with yeast or leaven silently working its way through the cells of the loaf to affect the whole lump of dough. Not only will you be cut off in the race, all of you who are entertaining throwing away your confidence in Christ's message, 
but soon this terrible choice of yours and its consequences can spread throughout the whole church there in Galatia. But Paul assures them that he has confidence that God won't allow that to happen and that the one who's bringing this false gospel to them will be cut off. He goes on to say that his preaching of the cross, which offends, is what causes him to be persecuted. There's the message of the Judaizers saying, do this and do that and look good on the outside. In contrast, the offensive message of the cross is this. Your situation is so hopeless and you are so helpless that nothing less than the death of the Son of God can save you. He turns finally here to address the one peddling this false hope of circumcision. So, you think cutting off a little skin is so helpful and important? Why not go whole hog and cut off the entire thing? Yes, Paul is getting very personal and worked up here. And don't you feel like cheering for Paul as he defends Christ's flock? Now, in the final three verses we'll look at today, Paul moves forward to talk about the freedom Christ has made available to us. The thing he set us free for. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. No longer having to strive for God's love and acceptance, we're set free to love one another, Paul says thereby fulfilling the very law that even the most strictly religious Jews could never fully keep. Something has been birthed in the Galatians and in us by God's Holy Spirit when we believe. You know that the human heart is incredibly complex. At any given moment, we can be a mixture of desires, some good and some decidedly not. And our strength to follow the good and resist the bad comes from the controlling love of our heart. Whatever you most seek and most desire is the thing that controls you. Thomas Chalmers, an 18th century Scottish Presbyterian pastor, put it like this. There's not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty and joy. The heart's desire for one particular object can be conquered, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. What Chalmers is saying is that every heart has a great love, something so important, something that it feels is absolutely vital to its existence. Can this great love be dethroned by another love, a greater love? Absolutely. Then that love will become the controlling passion of the heart, the thing that you will be serving and obeying. Paul is reminding them that God himself has called them to freedom. The greater love of Christ is now enthroned in their hearts, and it has set them free to love. Let me give you two examples of how one love gets dethroned by a greater one. In the book of Genesis, we read the story of Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who was a selfish deceiver who schemed to the hurt of others to get ahead in life. Jacob was enthroned in Jacob's heart. That is, until he met Rachel, beautiful in form and appearance. Three words the author of Genesis gives us about this meeting. Jacob loved Rachel. He loved her so much that he served her father Laban for seven years to take her as his wife. Seven years. 
But the writer of Genesis says they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Jacob, who had used lies and deceit to get what he wanted, was under the power of something greater that liberated him from his former selfishness. His consuming love for Rachel freed him to work for seven years to have her as his wife without counting it a burden. He was under the power of a greater love. Now, this story is about the picture of a very human love. But what power even a love like this can have to displace something that had controlled a heart? In the Gospel of Luke, we read the story of a man who was very wealthy and hated by the Jews as a traitor. Zacchaeus was a Jew and agreed to be hired by Rome to collect taxes from his own people. Tax collectors made a good commission, and they were known to skim a little money off the top of what they collected to further line their own pockets. But Zacchaeus had heard about Jesus, and he was so eager to see him that he, a short guy, climbed a tree, an undignified thing for a man of importance to do. But that was how eager he was for a glimpse of Jesus. However, there was someone even more eager to see Zacchaeus, Jesus. After telling the tax collector that he was planning to stay at his house and Zacchaeus welcoming this news with joy, Jesus must have communicated quite a love for this hated man as the very next thing we hear in the gospel story is Zacchaeus saying, Look, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've wrongfully taken more from anyone than I should have, I restore it four times over. This tax-collecting sinner was under the power of something that freed him from the old lord of his heart, greed. He had come under the power of the ultimate greater love. C.S. Lewis talks about this heart change in this way. To have faith in Christ means not doing things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already, not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. The first faint gleam is the power of Christ's love taking up residence inside you. This controlling love leads us paradoxically to true freedom. We're free to love our neighbors as ourselves, just the thing Zacchaeus was absolutely over the moon to do because he had crossed paths with Jesus and that life-changing interaction had sparked that first gleam of heaven inside him. True freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want, whenever you want, like our culture tells us. True freedom is the desire and ability to do just what you've been designed to do. A fish was designed to live in the water, absorbing oxygen through its gills. I can say, wow, that fish isn't free, being confined to the water. Wouldn't it be freer of that constricting environment? Just try putting a fish on land and see how that freedom works for him. He'll flip and he'll flop, powerless to move in any purposeful way, unable to breathe, to eat, to reproduce, all the things that he was designed for. A fish living his best life will not be living it in my living room, as warm and cozy as it may be. And likewise, we were designed to live in the environment of Christ's controlling love, which paradoxically leads us to the freedom to love and to serve. What is the controlling love of your heart? Is this love liberating you from the chains of self-centeredness? 
or binding them more tightly to you? Is it filling you with the desire to love others as you love yourself? Take some time to face that question honestly. A last word about someone else acting under the power of a greater love. Such a love is what caused him to accept the shame of the cross, to take on the bleak and agonizing work he chose to do there for us, who were captive, helpless sinners. But to his eyes, his beloved Rachel, to be joined with us was the vision, the joy he focused on when Spike staked his hands to the cross. No law or set of rules is going to die for you like that. No mark in your flesh is going to open the gates of the kingdom to you. But there is one who was marked in his flesh and who still bears those marks. And he has opened heaven for you. If you've never come to Jesus, considering, consider opening your heart to him today to the one who sees you and is calling you just as he called to Zacchaeus. And if you have opened your heart to Jesus, but you've slipped back into something else, controlling your heart and bringing you into bondage, come to him today. His desire for you, his beloved one, never changes. He's waiting for you to come so he can set you free. My chains fell off, my heart was free.